Thinking about health care these days? Well, you're not alone. And it seems that getting real information about the state of our medical system is tough to come by. That's why you've come to the right place with Dr. Bill, your radio MD. He's got the answers because he's a doctor. I said he's a doctor and he wants to hear from you right now. 877-969-8600. This is AM860, The Answer. And now it's time for Dr. Bill, your radio MD. Good morning, everybody. This is Dr. Bill, your radio MD. We're on am860theanswer.com, and you can reach me if you're on your computer anywhere in the world, 9 to 10 a.m. 10 a.m. every Sunday morning. You just go to my website, drbillradiomd.com, and click join me or listen now or whatever button you see that will take you to the show. You can also get there through the station's website, am860theanswer.com, and you click listen live, and you've got me, and I'm I'm wonderful to listen to. Everybody loves me, especially me. So join in and have some fun. Me too. Well, today, we do. <laughs> okay. All right, Bill. So we've got, uh, we got a great show today. It's just me, and I'm going to talk uh, politics and social economic stuff, talk about civil war. Are we headed for another civil war? It's really gotten heated up, and the Pew Research Center says that we're more polarized than we have been in, in uh, decades, really decades. And so it, it's a very scary thing. And when we think of civil war, our own civil war, we think of hundreds of thousands of people killed and uh, millions left limbless. The morphine epidemic started after the civil war in the 1870s and 80s. Intravenous injection of morphine was the treatment for the phantom pain after someone had lost a limb and uh, a lot of things came out of the civil war not only was there great destruction but there was an there was an era of great growth as well so it was certainly a mixed blessing and the technology both the war technology the medical technology that came out of the civil war uh, advanced countries in our country greatly but do we really want to go through this again? And are we at a point now in our our social, political, emotional, intellectual, technological evolution? Are we at the point where we can say we can resolve these differences without taking to the streets and shooting each other or forming organized sides and and duking it out? And uh, that these are these are big questions. And people that I talk to on the left. Uh, and I say, I think we're headed towards a civil war. If we don't do something, they look at me like I'm crazy. People on the right, when I say that, they say, yeah, I agree with you. So there's not only a big emotional disconnect, but there's a big intellectual disconnect between the two sides. And I was commenting to Bill right before the show that I will sit and listen to two pundits, one from the right and one from the left on Fox or one of the news stations. And when they talk, it's as if they aren't even talking about the same thing. It's hard for me to understand how they cannot even be focused on the same issues. One will talk about the need for defined borders, and the other one will talk about the illegality of Trump's election or some other stuff. And, you know, it's, it, it doesn't make any sense. It, it's, it's all emotion. You know, generally, when we think of the left wing, we're thinking of socialism, 
pacifism, internationalism, and the left sees itself as the branch of the intellectual family that upholds ideals of freedom and equality and brotherhood, human rights, progress, social reform, internationalism. And those all sound great on paper. You know, they have a very uh, emotional appeal, as one of my friends said. Uh, It sounds so good. Communism sounds so good when you read it in Karl Marx's works. But in reality, it just doesn't really work very well, as we've seen with a lot of the big countries. The right, on the other hand, is associated with authority, hierarchy, order, duty, tradition, reactionism, traditionalism, all these things that people think of on the left when they talk about the right. I don't think that this is absolutely true on either side, but there are certainly some elements of this that the right is interested in maintaining order. And one of the ways in which we're doing that right now is demanding for a more structured, better protected border with Mexico. This has been a porous border, and our argument has been that you can't have a country if you don't have borders. And the left will say, well, what's the difference? My sister will say, what do we need borders for? Well, what are we going to do if we have half the Mexican population come in the United States? How are we going to economically and socially uh, absorb that huge number of people? It's a big country. It's 120 million people, I think. It's it's no small country, and 60 million people would would overwhelm us. I mean, the same problem is being faced by the South Koreans if, by some small chance, the North Koreans agree to disarm and open their borders. They're going to be flooded. The South is going to be flooded with millions of disabled, sick, Medicaid-type people who are seeking economic asylum in the South. So it's, it's, it's something that I think emotions which can overtake either side, but seems particularly how on the left right now, can blind people to, you know, how can we do this? How can we absorb the Mexican population if we have a completely open border? That's, that's not only a social problem, but it's an economic problem that we have to face. Now, we have to think of, of this in terms of what can we do on a, on a realistic utilitarian rational basis and and I have said this before on the show I'm I'm a utilitarian I want to do what works I want to see what works and this is in part financial so I want to make sure that whatever decisions we make we're able to handle them not only emotionally and physically but economically and socioeconomically it would be ridiculous to destroy what we have in order to allow millions and millions of Mexicans to come in the country seeking uh, basically economic asylum uh, and escape from from a weaker government to a stronger government where there's more law and order. And th- that law and order did not just uh, drop on us. I mean, this was, was well-founded and well-structured at the beginning of our republic. And I think that we have to respect that, whether you think that the founding fathers are irrelevant now or that the Constitution is irrelevant now, you have to admit that what they left us, that is a rule of law, is vital to our survival, and it plays into everything we do, not only to maintaining interpersonal relationships and intrapersonal uh, behavior, governing ourselves and each other and making sure we're not shooting each other in the street, running each over, running each other over in our cars, but that we're 
economically behaving and following the rules so that everybody has a chance at making it. And the free enterprise system is a, just an integral part of any free society. I mean, without that, you really don't have a free society. That's a problem that China is going to run into. Well, at any rate, there's a push for international mediation and in, in all of these situations, multi-party uh, involvement, and the United Nations is stepping into conflicts and it's not only stepping into conflicts in terms of civil wars within countries, but also it's stepping into conflicts between ideologies in countries. Even in our own country, we hear people at the UN voicing, expressing their opinions about what the United States should and should not do. And I, I've told you guys a story before about the pharmacists in northern Germany and Kiel when we stopped there on a cruise uh, a couple of years ago, and I needed an inhaler for my asthma because I wanted to ride bicycles. And she, the pharmacist, eventually gave me what I wanted, even though it really wasn't completely legal. I didn't have a German doctor's prescription. But she said, I'll do it on one condition, and that is that you do not, that you do not, that you don't vote for Donald Trump. And I'm thinking, a pharmacist in North Germany is that deeply involved in our political system? And believe me, they are. The world is. And, and we have to stop and think about that. We do have outside intervention, and it may or may not be helpful. It may or may not be helpful. Certainly, we need to listen. There's no harm in listening to what somebody has to say as long as it's well-founded and based in some, uh, some discipline, some ideology. I mean, I'm, I, I don't care what the anarchists have to say. I don't care what the libertarians have to say because basically they're social anarchists uh, but fiscal conservatives, and that doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Well, what is a civil war anyway? Well, it's a war within a state, a state that's already defined either by international convention or by regional convention that, you know, you're a country, you're the United States or you're Mexico or you're Canada. So it's within that country, within the United States, that a conflict arises and the aim is one side to take control over the country or a region of the country in order to achieve independence or to change government policies. These things are realities, and we see civil wars going on all over the world. We're embroiled in the Syrian civil war, and we have been involved in civil wars in the 20th century frequently. And especially with the Cold War, we picked sides, and we sided with South Korea and South Vietnam, and we went into Grenada and dozens of other conflicts, some not even recognized. Central America, we were involved in the civil wars there, probably helped prolong the civil wars rather than decrease the length of the civil wars. But the outcome, I think, has been for the better. And you say, well, any loss of life is, is a sin. And I think if you're a Buddhist or you're a Christian, a true follower of Jesus, you're going to say that, yeah, that, that it's wrong to kill, that that you know, violence is not acceptable. That's exactly what Jesus and the Buddha were teaching. They were saying, don't be violent. So there is that aspect of it. And there are religious sects like the Quakers who still are very uh, firm in their belief in nonviolence. And that's, that's fine with me. I don't have a problem with that. I think that those people are practicing a pure form of their religion than many others. Well, 
what is it that leads up to a civil war? This is a this is the problem. This is the the whole crux of it. How can we avoid falling into that trap again as we did in the 1860s? And what is a civil war? It's a violent conflict within a country. It's fought by organized groups. And in our civil war, the South was organized. There were states that were already in place and had governments. There were federal officers and elected officials that went back to the states and formed the Confederacy. And so you had two recognized authorities. You had the Union with the government still in Washington, D.C., and you had the Confederacy with Jefferson Davis as its president. And there was a hierarchy. There were generals. There were uh, representatives. There were senators. There were military men. There were councils. And all these things are necessary to have a defined civil war. Now, the next thing that you have to have are casualties. The current definition is more than a 1,000 casualties a year. I think that that's a little, uh, a little more than, than – or a little less, rather, than I would have uh, chosen because of the growth in the population over the past 50 years. But let's say a 1,000 on each side. And if you have over a 1,000 more related casualties per year of conflict, then the academic, academics will call this a civil war. We've seen a lot of civil wars, at least in my lifetime, the Sudanese Civil War, Cambodia, uh, South Vietnam, Northern Ireland was basically a civil war. The civil war that began in South Africa, which did have over a thousand people, but there were really no uh, declared entities that said we're at war with you, the, the organized government, the African National Congress said that we want to change the government but not necessarily overthrow it. Well, if you look at this, in the past two centuries, there have been over 200 civil wars. What does the Geneva Convention say? Well, it doesn't specifically define a civil war, but it does say that if you are in an organized conflict, that is, you have two sides with recognized authorities running it, and say one side is the rebellious side and the other side is the, uh, the legal government at that time, then if you're going to call yourself a civil war, you need to behave as if you were part of the Geneva Convention. And so the government possesses an organized military force and is responsible for its acts, and the rebels possess a military force and an authority responsible for their actions. The legal government is obliged to have recourse to, re to regular military forces against the insurgents because that's part of what governments do. They protect us from rebellion. And this has to be an organized military like we had in the United States in the 1860s. We had the Union Army, although there wasn't much of it. It had... Uh, swelled a little bit in the 1840s with the Mexican-American War, but by 1860, it had shrunk down to several thousand men and quickly blossomed to a couple of million during the Civil War. And the South also had uh, an organized mechanism where the, they drafted uh, or men enlisted to fight the war against the North. And so the North in our conflict recognized the South as insurgents or belligerents, and Lincoln said they're not a separate nation. They are rebels who are trying to split the country in half. 
but we do recognize that they have a hierarchy because if it comes to negotiating a peace, we need to have somebody that we can talk to. So we have to have two sides that are, for a real civil war, that are armed, that have leadership, that have recognized roles, that recognize the differences between each other, that are acting within the accord of some kind of military conventions. And uh, this is a problem that we see in civil wars like Syria, where there are really no conventions being followed. The Geneva Convention is out the door. In Syria, as part of the United Nations, I don't know if they signed the Geneva Convention, probably not. But nevertheless, they're expected to behave in a certain way if they're a member of the organization. What are the roots of civil wars? Well, we look at the Middle East and we think, hmm, it looks a lot like religious civil wars. It looks like the Shias and the Sunni Muslims are at it in Iraq. Uh, it looks like the civil war in in uh Yemen is a religious civil war. The scholars will say, well, greed-based explanations, which center on people's desires to maximize their profits and get rich, and grievance-based explanations are two of the main reasons. And then there's opportunity-based explanations, which center on, on ideas that make it easier to engage in violence. And Opportunity-based explanations is something that I have seen on the left when I was a kid in my hippie days, listening to the quote-quote leaders of the uh, Weather Underground and the Students for Democratic Society and the Black Panthers. It looked to me like an opportunity-based uh, phenomena that they wanted to implement what they thought was the correct uh, political system for the United States, which is which was socialism. That's what they wanted. Now, what about greed versus grievances? Are conflicts caused by people who are uh, greedy, or are, they con or are they caused by people who are ethnically or religiously different uh, or socially different? And do conflicts begin because it is in the, or is in the economic best interest of individuals and groups to start them? Most scholars support the conclusion that economic and structural factors are more important than those of identity. That is, who do I belong to? Which group am I with? Am I on the right or the left? Am I uh, conservative or liberal? Am I a Sunni or a Shia? Uh, so these are all the factors that, that come into play. But most of the scholars feel that it's economic-based. And the World Bank actually did a study in the beginning of this century, and they looked at scientifically, factors that were shown to have a statistically significant effect on countries and civil wars within them. And this is uh, something that we should take a close look at. The framework of the study uh, was quite good, and they used real statistical analysis. They had statisticians involved, and they looked for things that were factors that were statistically significant. And one thing that they found was that a high proportion of primary commodities and national exports significantly increase the risk of a conflict. And that sounds kind of odd, but you think about it. Commodities are, are uh, grains and oil and, and precious metals and iron and aluminum and all these different things that we think of as things that are pulled out of the earth or grown in the earth. These are commodities. And they said when the commodity 
when the amount of commodities is over 22%, there's a high risk of falling into civil war in any five-year period. And the, the best example we have at this point is Venezuela. The Venezuelans have, have, have been heavily dependent for the, their economy on the export of oil. It's a big part of their economy. I don't know what it is, probably 50%, I'm guessing. If I'm wrong, you can correct me. By the way, you can join the discussion at any time at 877-969-8600, 877-969-8600. And when I get through this little bit, you can jump in and tell me what you think. So what amount of uh, exports of commodities are uh, a big part of our economy? We export... Uh, about 11 to 12% of our goods, mostly manufactured goods. Uh, automobiles are number one, airplane parts, uh, pharmaceuticals, and these are not commodities. We do have oil as our number two or three export, believe it or not. Yeah, we're importing oil and exporting it. I know it doesn't make any sense, but uh, trust me, it happens. It has to do with the logistics of moving large quantities of oil from uh, from one place to another, the shortest distance, the the uh, most economical way to move it around, and there are computers and commodities guys that sit there and do nothing but look at the prices of oil and where the big tankers are and how much it will cost to bring that tanker from Prudhoe Bay down to the United States uh, to the lower 48 versus sending it to Japan or Korea. And so there are a lot of things that come into play, but we do export a lot of oil. The good thing, though, is that it's fairly diversified. We do not have a national, nationalized oil company like Venezuela. And it's easy to see that if you have a nationalized oil company, if you have one or two sources, it's much easier to gain control of that. And once you gain control of that, you can use it for extortion of the, of the populace, or you can use the money from it to do what you want, and basically then you have a dictatorship. Uh, we have been very cautious about not allowing any one company to have a monopoly of the crude oil business, and we have several different companies in the United States. Uh, some have merged from smaller companies to mega companies. We have outside companies like British Petroleum, which also leases oil drilling and oil uh, pumping rights in the United States and British Petroleum owned the uh, the event horizon or the horizon, I forget what we call it, you know, the, the, the uh, oil well in the Gulf of Mexico that lost control and spilled all the oil into the Gulf of Mexico. So we see a lot of different players in the market, and the government doesn't have any control of of, of, of any of these of, for the purposes of protecting us from our government. We have insisted that our government stay out of and not have ownership in and not have control over the oil industry and other industries. Now, they do have uh, laws in place to help control how the oil is produced and to manage the safety of the production and the distribution of oil, the refining of oil. Uh, a lot of us on the right feel that the left has gone way too far in their ecological lawmaking. And this in and of itself can become a way of controlling the oil by having the green parties, the left, uh, the people who want ecological 
I don't know how to say it, justice or ecological control, who, if they get control of the government, will impose enough legal restraints on industries like oil that it would become an extortive, uh, it would become a controlling uh, uh, sort of a dictatorial power that even though the the government doesn't own the oil companies and the oil wells. They basically control them through restrictive laws. So we have to be careful of that, and that's something I would caution my friends on the left about. And I'm not saying that you're wrong when we talk about saving the environment or creating a better environment. We all need to think about that and continue to look for ways to do that uh, to get the excess carbon dioxide and the excess water out of the atmosphere that are acting as greenhouse gases. And these are the things that are released, as I've said before, when we burn hydrocarbons, whether it's in our body or in our car, that's what it releases. So that's one way that a country can come into jeopardy for a civil war is by having a high percentage of exports as part of their their gross domestic product. And that opens it up to a lot of abuse by small groups of people, especially in countries like Venezuela, where there's a de facto control by the government of the oil industry. And we have to be cautious about not allowing that, whether it's from the government nationalizing the oil industry or whether it's from the government actually uh, controlling the industry to the point where it is crippled and it is being held hostage and the people are being held hostage to the government, which is trying to overregulate these industries. So that's something we have to think about. Now, if you have a very small amount of exports, of commodity exports that you rely upon for your domestic, uh, gross domestic product, then you have a very smaller risk of falling into a civil war. And we're in that group. I mean, we do not have a large proportion of our gross domestic product involved in exporting commodities. We used to have more back before we taught the world to feed itself because we exported not only gas, but we also exported grains and foods and all kinds of commodities. The world's better at feeding itself as well as discovering its own natural resources, and we have helped teach that. The ease by which these commodities can be exported and the ability of governments to control that is what is the the big problem a second a second factor that came into play that was uh, deemed statistically significant by the world world bank study was that the source of financing the financing comes from in the national diaspora so if you and and a good uh, a good way of looking at this is the Jewish side of the family in the United States. Uh, the diaspora of the Jews from Europe, and many came to the United States, has helped fund the nation of Israel because a large group of Jews emigrated from Europe to Israel after World War II, after the Holocaust. And the United States, the Jewish community, was very integral and funding the the new nation of Israel and continues to give support. And I can remember as a kid collecting for the Jewish National Fund, uh, and that was a fund that was purportedly helping the, the Israelis to 
obtain water, to drill for water, to create water reservoirs, and to find ways of capturing and utilizing and recycling their water because a lot of the area is desert and water is a big factor. And there are people in Israel that will say, that's what we're fighting over here is the rights to water. We're not fighting over oil. We're not fighting over land. Uh, we're fighting with the uh, Muslims over water rights. So the diaspora of the Jews out of Europe into the United States helped fund the state of Israel because the Jewish side of the family has been largely successful in the United States academically, intellectually, through the trades, uh, through the professions, in government, in banking, in a number of areas. So it's, it's been uh, um, an amazing story to see the Jewish population, and there are other populations that have done as well, like the uh, Korean and Japanese populations in the United States have done very well. So the money has gone back. That's the second source of, or a second cause of civil wars, is that if you have a group of people who have been expelled from the country that is headed towards a civil war, and they're sending money back to finance a civil war, then you got a higher risk of a civil war occurring. Another factor is, uh, <clears throat> is the higher male secondary school enrollment. The per capita income and economic growth rate, all these had a significant effect on reducing the chances of a civil war. And the male secondary school enrollment, if it's 10% above the average, reduced the chance of a conflict by 3%. The percentages are not important. The idea is that the more young men that you have in secondary enrollment, the less chance of a civil war. And so I agree with people when they say education is one of the cornerstones of maintaining our society as a free and open society. And the study interpreted these factors as proxies for earnings in the future, which are foregone by rebellion. So if people feel that there's hope that, you know, I'm getting an education, so I'm going to get a better job and that my earnings will go up and things are good, then I'm not going to go join the rebels. And most of the fighters for any revolution, any war, are young men, like teenagers and young adult males. Young males who make up the vast majority of combatants in any civil war are less likely to join that, that war, that fight. If they're getting an education, they're having a, a, a sense that they're going to make it in society. They're going to have comfort. They'll have a salary that will allow them to live comfortably and that they will prosper in the future. And that's an important thing for guys. We have to feel that way because we're the ones who go out and slay the, slay the animals and bring the meat home. And we don't do that anymore. We go out and we work and earn money. That's the way we go out and slay animals. That's where the hunters. And if we don't feel like we can do that and provide adequately for our families, and that's one of the main things that guys are supposed to do. That's genetically imprinted on us. Then, we increase the risk of civil war. Now, <clears throat> low per capita income has been proposed as a cause for grievances uh, and promoting civil wars, but uh, for this to be true, we'd have to think of economic inequality to also be a big factor in rebellions, which it's not. So the study that the World Bank did, 
therefore concluded that the economic model of opportunity cost better explain the findings rather than inequality. So inequality, economic inequality, is not the same as not having an economic future. <coughs> the idea that we can prosper in the future if we persist in the present is something that gives people hope and says, well, you know, I'm only 18 or 19. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and get some more education while I can. I can still live at mom and dad's house and I have a pretty good idea that I'm going to be able to get a job when I get out of college or uh, get my associate degree or get out of trade school. So these are important, important ideas that we have to maintain in the front of the argument when we're all discussing and arguing over these things and whether or not Trump's presidency is legal or not, or whether or not the border should be open or not. The first things that we need to think about are, are we ensuring that our young men are staying in school, that they're getting an education, that they have an economic opportunity, that they see a future for themselves? Because if they don't, then we're going to have problems. So far, I think we're doing that. There's a lot of, uh, debate as to whether or not public versus private and vouchers and all that. And I think that that's just window dressing around some of the liberal versus conservative uh, policies. I don't have a problem with uh, a dispersion of education into different arenas, whether it's homeschooled or religious-based schools or military-based schools or public schools, but we don't need a monolithic approach to education in this country. That would be a disaster, whether it's the left or the right. And a lot of the criticism of public schools has been that the schools have gone too far to the left. <clears throat> and that may be true. Certainly it's debated a lot. What about grievances? The theory that civil wars begin because of issues of identity rather than economics, uh, were not as statistically significant in these studies, including economic inequality, political rights, ethnic polarization, and religious fractionalization. Only ethnic dominance, that is where the, the dominant ethnic group in the country, the largest ethnic group comprised the majority of the population, increased the risk of a civil war because of the minority feeling that they were being stepped upon. And this doubled the chance of a civil war. And the greater the chance... Uh, becomes apparent when you see, as we saw in the 60s and 70s and 80s with the, uh, the civil rights movement turning violent in many ways, that, that a minority within our country felt it was being oppressed by the majority. And there was a lot of, uh, of uh, basis to that. Now, that's still being carried forward, and at some point it will dissipate. It already has dissipated a good deal, and we've had a black president, so it's hard to argue that there are no or there aren't the same opportunities for black Americans as there are white Americans. If application is used, uh, you've got to apply yourself. But I, I still think that there are lingering echoes of the racism of the first two centuries, first century and a half of our country. And that's to be expected. Anytime you have a slave population freed, it takes a while to assimilate that population into the general public. Now, the, the Romans didn't have as much trouble, but they didn't look at ethnicity as uh, uh, in the same way that we looked at it. They, 
if you were a slave and you got your freedom, and a lot of slaves did get freedom, they were able to work their way out of slavery into freedom and become Roman citizens, they were they were accepted as Roman citizens, and they didn't want to carry on their ethnic traditions from uh, Romania or Gaul or North Africa. They wanted to be Romans, and they brought their culture and meshed it with the Roman culture and made a stronger Roman culture. And that's another factor that will uh, retard civil wars is when you have mixed ethnicity and social and political and religious groups who are living together and learning how to work together. I, I'm, I'm very much against, and I've thought this is the stupidest thing, to have these uh, Italian days or these Black History days or these Polish days. And, you know, you go up to Chicago, they still have a Polish day up there. Um, my mother was uh, first genera- uh, second generation. Her parents came from Poland, so she had pure Polish blood in her. So I've got half Polish-American blood. I have no idea and have never been to a Polish ethnic uh, gathering in the United States. Who cares? It's not important. I'm an American. I'm a mutt. And I think that that's what's important is that we're able to blend our ethnicities and our religious beliefs and our socializations and our, our various political views into a, a common culture. This is where I'm concerned is that we have so much gap so much distance between us and the Pew Research has shown this that we're pulling further and further apart. We agree less and less on a number of issues whether it's uh, racial justice or economics uh, or borders or intervention in foreign wars. So we've got a big disconnect and, and this is where we have to keep talking and to stay focused and keep studying because we do not want to sink into another civil war. It would be devastating. It would be devastating. We have the ability to kill ourselves and a large part of the society with the weaponry that we have now. So we got to keep talking. Speaking of keeping talking, I'm going to give my throat a rest. I'm going to grab a cup of Joe. I'll be back in a minute or two. Don't go away. I got more good stuff for you when I come back. We're going to talk about the opportunities that arise uh, and cause civil wars. I'm Dr. Bill, your Radio MD. With SRN News, I'm Michael Harrington in Washington. A renewed threat of tariffs on Chinese high-tech goods have drawn a warning from China following the latest round of talks about the trade dispute with Washington. Beijing says any deals reached during the talks will not take effect if President Trump makes good on his threat. A delegation led by Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross met China's top economic official today. The largest study ever done of breast cancer treatment finds that most women with the most common form of the disease can skip chemotherapy without hurting their chances of survival. The results announced today expected to spare up to 70,000 patients a year the expense and ordeal of those drugs. And Defense Secretary Jim Mattis is warning it will be a bumpy road to the nuclear talks with North Korea later this month. He's advising South Korea and Japan to maintain a strong defensive stance. This is SRN News. 
It's Dr. Bill for Bay Area Medical, located at 6399 38th Avenue North in St. Pete, 727-384-6411, 727-384-6411. Full-service clinic with x-ray, heart imaging, ultrasound, stress testing, and minor surgery. We provide quality health care in a warm and friendly atmosphere. We are multilingual, well-trained, and certified. Most American insurance and new patients accepted. Bay Area Medical, home of Can Care, 727-384-6411. 727-384-6411. Hello, this is Dr. Bill Handelman for our good friends at Tampa Bay Imaging. TBI provides state-of-the-art MRI and CT scanning with the lowest radiation possible. Most insurance plans accepted and self-pay rates are very competitive. TBI is conveniently located in Tampa and St. Pete with evening and weekend appointments. So call TBI today or ask your doctor. In Tampa, call 813-386-3674. St. Pete, call 727-545-9674. Have you written a book and want to get it published? Christian Faith Publishing helps thousands of authors publish their books with a company dedicated to strong Christian values. The most important qualities that I was looking for was a publisher who was honest and upfront, no hidden costs or fees, and owning the rights to my own work. It all starts with our free author submission kit. Call 800-566-1012. We'll edit, design, copyright, protect, print, and distribute books online and in bookstores everywhere. You'll see your books in Christian bookstores, Amazon, iTunes, Barnes & Noble, and many others. If you have a biography, novel, devotional, self-help, or other inspirational work, we get it published. We provide professional book editing, award-winning design, with the highest royalty structure in the industry. Plus, you retain 100% rights to your work. Get your book published today. Call for your free author submission kit at 800-566-1012. That's 800-566-1012. 800-566-1012. The political landscape today is often filled with spin, and the truth is sometimes hard to decipher. So how can you really know what's in your best interest as an American, as a voter? Turn to the trusted voices leading America in the right direction at conservativeradio.com. Visit conservativeradio.com to hear the facts, thoughtful insights, and intelligent perspectives from Dennis Prager, Hugh Hewitt, Michael Medved, and more. From anywhere on your laptop, tablet, or smartphone, listen at conservativeradio.com. Here is your exclusive AccuWeather forecast. Today we'll have partial sunshine with a high 89. Tonight, partly cloudy humid with a low 79. Tomorrow, partly sunny, breezy, humid with a high 89. Tomorrow night, partly cloudy, humid with a shower and thunderstorm in spots. The low will be 76. Tuesday, partly sunny with a high 89. On Wednesday, pleasant with times of clouds and sun and a high 88. That's your weather forecast. I'm Dan Pittman for AM 860, The Answer. bit of Jim Morrison and the Doors, the Unknown Soldier, and of course in the late 60s and 70s, the war in Vietnam was going on and a lot of people were opposed to it and a lot of anti-war songs. I think that uh, there's something to be said for that, that we have to stop and think about whether or not we want to go after each other violently. It's certainly not something that I covet or would like to see. 
but opportunities now. There are people that say, well, if you have a very diverse culture, it's more likely to fraction to fractionate. And that's not true. Ethnic and religious diversity does not make civil wars more likely, makes them less likely. So we want to stay as diversified as we can. And now the left's going to say, well, then why don't we just have uh, uh, immigration from all different parts of the world and not on a merit-based system so that we can get more diversity? Um, And my argument is that not only do we need diversity, but we also need the strength of of people as they come in. And I don't have a problem with somebody from Nigeria immigrating to the United States. I have a couple of Nigerian friends who are doctors, but I do think that we should screen and make sure that we're getting the kind of people that we want that are going to not only bring diversity, but also be an addition to the culture. And I don't care what color or creed or anything they are, as long as they're going to be in addition to the culture, then I'm all for it. And we do need diversity. And I've I promote that, and I'm all for it. So we know that poverty, uh, which marks financially and bureaucratically weak countries, can also favor rebel activity. So there's opportunities that arise when there is poverty. And as I said before, earlier on the show, when that government has the control of commodities that are being exported for hard cash. Part of the problem with our civil war is that the southeast – was the cash cow for the country in terms of exports. And the Southeast, uh, the control of the Southeast and the export business was not in the majority. It was in a smaller uh, minority group of people's hands. And this probably added to the, uh, the recipe for civil war in our country in the 1860s. So the commodities industry, uh, although it's an important part of our our income and has been since the beginning of the Republic uh, needs to be the smaller portion and not the larger portion. That way we can protect against having any one group or a central government gain control of those, of those uh, commodities like oil. It's easier to control an oil field or a gold mine than it is to control auto manufacturing or uh, blue jean sewing Mills. I mean, it's 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 tougher to do that, especially when there's such a, a dispersion of these industries across the country, where you have parts being made in Alabama and Michigan, and Ohio and Kentucky and uh, Texas, and and they're coming from all over the place. It's harder to get control, and you have multiple companies competing against each other. So that's the good thing about free enterprise is it it decreases the the opportunity and the ability for a country to to devolve into civil war. We don't want that. That's a bad thing. What about resolving these things? Well, part of the problem was that the the combating groups uh, don't have a common forum where they can sit down and talk, that there's there's no trust. And uh, the United Nations has said, well, that's part of what we want to do as a as a functional body is to be the mediator between groups and civil wars within countries. And that that's okay. You first have to get at least one common area for the two groups to talk over. And states are often unable to escape conflict traps, recurring civil wars, due to the lack of uh, institutions, not only the ability to sit down and talk over an item, but also institutions that are strong politically or that uh, there's a legal institution in place that both parties can, can – uh, 
defer to, and, and these are the things that we need. And that's one of the beauties of what we have, and a lot of the world doesn't have this. And I try to explain this to my sisters, and they just don't get it. They say people are the same everywhere. Well, I mean, yeah, we all have the same basic desires to make it, to have a family, and uh, you know, have some kind of enjoyment in our life, and so on and so forth. But the political systems, the levels of corruption, the lack of law, the lawlessness, it's, it's just, uh, it's unbelievable in a lot of the world. I was talking with some of the uh, Indian doctors yesterday, and we were talking about the problems in India. And a lot of these guys have family property that they have become involved with through inheritances. And there are multiple lawsuits, and uh, the lawsuits in India take 10 years to resolve. And there's payoffs and bribes, and people commit murders, and they get out of jail by bribing their way through it, and there's always somebody greasing uh, somebody else's palm. So a law, a rule of law is a necessity in order to maintain stability in society. And we have a call from Richard in Clearwater. Hey, Richard, welcome to the show. How you doing? Good, Dr. Bill. Always good to listen to you. I appreciate the wide variety of topics that you have concerning the topic today. I don't think I have anything to add other than to say it's very interesting again to see how well prepared you are on any given subject and uh, one comment on last week's show your bumper music uh, song by Alice Cooper I don't know if you realize but uh, he still tours and typically comes through to Ruth Eckert Hall once a year so uh, yeah maybe I, I didn't know he, that, until I saw that song I didn't know that he was still touring but that it's amazing he's got to be an old fart yeah, he is, and he says he's not ready to slow down. His wife tours with him and is part of the show. It's quite a show to see. Maybe I'll see you there next year. Absolutely. Well, listen, Richard, uh, give me a shout. You uh, you obviously know how to get a hold of me, so uh, give me a shout when he comes to town. I'd love to go and see what he's up to. That would be fun. Maybe we could interview great. him. Oh, that would be great. All right, Dr. All right. Bill. I appreciate you, now. buddy. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Alice Cooper, oh my God, can you believe that, Bill? I mean, that's going back, what, to the 70s? Even old for me. <laughs> too old for you. You're you're too young to remember that. I'm only so, 50. You're only 50? Oh, you're a baby. Oh my God. Actually, I'm 49. I'll be 50 in three months. We won't hold it against you. You know, a lot of the young people, my son and his and his gang, they have very different views from the, the parents the parents that they came from in terms of social and political uh, uh, philosophies. And uh, I find that interesting. Now, I don't think it's that much different from any other generation. We certainly had very different views from our parents in the 60s, and we were ready for uh, rebellion and and civil war and all that. But I, I, I respect these kids because they don't want that. They don't want civil war. I mean, they're smart enough to know that that's not going to lead anywhere. And I, I have, and although it looks like there's a vocal, uh, large minority of, of, of young people who are uh, fomenting civil war and do not want free speech and all that, I think they're a very, very small proportion of the population. They just get a lot of play because they're they're active. They're active in the press and in Facebook and so on and so forth. Well, what other factors can we attribute to? the formation of the fomenting of civil wars. Well, when you have a dispersed population, when you have uh, uh, physical barriers, barriers like mountainous terrain, uh, these sort of things increase the chance of conflicts. 
Uh, both of these factors favor the rebels because a lot of times rebellions are fought as wars of attrition, and you just hope that the other side gives up and goes away. And the South could have won the war in our Civil War, but uh, the the hierarchy, especially General Lee, he thought that he could invade the North, and by winning a big battle there, he could hasten the end of the war that the North would sue for peace. It didn't work too well at Gettysburg, and um, he put his tail between his legs and went back south, and the South eventually was defeated. Another phenomena of the Southern revolt was the idea of the diaspora. That is that a lot of the Southerners who were involved in the hierarchy of the government of the Confederacy and the fomenting of the rebellion and the Civil War were dispersed from England. And so they thought that the English would support them. And they had some glimmers of hope intermittently. But the English sat on the sidelines and waited to see whether the South would be strong enough to be an independent nation. And uh, the South faltered, especially after Gettysburg, and that ended the hope of, of financial assistance from the parent country, from England. So that's, that was part of our revolution, our, or not our revolution, but our civil war. What about population size? Well, the bigger the country, population-wise, the more likely it'll fraction. It'll fractionate and become uh, multiple different countries. And that's one of the problems that I see in China is that they have a huge population that is traditionally fractionated off and on over time into uh, various uh, states. And they still have a lot of state level identification and ethnicity and regional languages. And it's, it's, uh, it's hard for us to imagine because we don't get that, um, we don't get that information or that flavor from the Chinese but if you go there, you can see it and feel it, and it's, it's fascinating. So the larger the population, uh, the more likely it is to fractionate. What about time? Well, if you can put more time between you and any argument, the less likely you're going to be to pick it back up. So if it's you and the wife or you and a partner in business or you and a patient, if you just don't talk about it, you just ignore it, and let time elapse, then that will decrease the chances of a civil war. So homogenization homogenization of the population, as we're trying to do in the United States, even though we have all these people with all their, you know, ethnic uh, uh, festivals and all that, it's all baloney, it's just a bunch of nonsense. Uh, if we can just get away from that and be more like the Romans who said, fine, bring all your ethnicity with you, but it's now part of the Romans. You're now a Roman. So that's what we need to do. Hey, a real interesting thing, I'll be real quick about this, is some scholars think that the more women are involved in the politics, the more power they have in society, the more equality, the less likely those cultures are to uh, have civil wars or to go to war. And I can see that. That makes sense. The women are going to want to work things out more than the men. The men will get to fighting before they'll sit down and talk. So that's important. Well, listen, I'm getting to the end of the show here, and I haven't we only got 30 seconds left. Oh, my God. Where does the time go? Where does it go? Too much fun, baby. Well, Civil War, are we going to go there? I hope not. I think that we can avoid it if we follow some of the basis, basics that I've talked about today. And I count on all of you to continue to be open and to listen to the opposite side. I'm Dr. Bill, your Radio D. We'll see you guys next week. <laughs>